Proctor with some announcements before we get into this week's episode. Summer Bob 2019 will take place in Berlin at the Sandic Hotel Potsdamer Plots, a friendly, environmentally conscious place that focuses on sustainability. Bob 2019 co-locates with the International Conference on Functional Programming, the premier gathering of functional programmers, which takes place from August 18th to August 23rd. Moreover, there is also the excellent Racket Fest, August 17th. For more information and the links to the other conferences, visit bobconf.de, that's B-O-B-K-O-N-F dot D-E slash 2019-summer. ElmConf is September 12th in St. Louis. They have 10 speakers on things like accessibility, 3D rendering engines, game development, and music. They've also got Richard Feldman as MC. Tickets are $150, even if you're not going to StrangeLoop. But StrangeLoop is wonderful, and they encourage folks to go. Open F-Sharp 2019, a conference to learn, create, and connect with F-Sharp and its community, is taking place in the heart of San Francisco on the 25th to the 27th of September. Open F-Sharp features two days of F-Sharp talks with hands-on world-class speakers and a unique opportunity to connect with the F-Sharp community and its key contributors while learning about the latest developments in the F-Sharp ecosystem. Our partner Lambda Days has just announced their CFP. Go to their website and submit a talk for a chance to present your work on their stage in February. Visit www.lambdadays.org slash lambdadays2020 dash call for papers. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I'll be happy to announce them. Also, some of you have mentioned that you would like to show support for Functional Geekery. In that vein, Functional Geekery now has a Patreon page. If that is how you would like to show your support, you can find out more at www.patreon.com slash fngeekery. And a giant virtual hug goes out to all those who are already supporting the podcast. Lastly, if you are enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm Rose Proctor, and this week with us we have Kitty Hughes. Kitty, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Sure. Hi, I'm Katie Hughes. I'm a software engineer at No Red Inc. and I've been there for about six months now. Before I was doing React at AppNexus and I moved to San Francisco for No Red Inc. because I wanted to work from the office and originally am from Oregon. And I did Bachelors of Computer Science at Oregon State. So what got you into software development and programming? We'll follow that trail through to getting into functional programming and your way to know Red Ink. But what started out and what was your early experience? And can you kind of lead us through your life cycle of introduction to programming and computer science to the evolution of getting into Elm and functional programming? Yeah. So I started in high school with programming. I, my sophomore year of high school, took a class called Introduction to Tech in the Workplace. 
which sounds a lot cooler than it was. It was a lot of like, here's how to use Excel. But there was one unit on HTML and CSS. And since the class kind of went slowly, I also taught myself JavaScript during that time. So I got really into HTML and JavaScript and all that. And for every class assignment after that, I was like, I'm going to make a website. And so I really enjoyed that. And then the next year, I had a credit block that I needed to fill with a class. And I didn't know what to add in there, but I knew that there was this computer science class. I didn't know what that meant, but I knew I liked computers and I knew I liked science. So I'd probably like this class. When I took it, I instantly fell in love. That class was in Pascal, which is pretty uncommon as a first language nowadays. But my teacher really liked it because it was written by a linguist. And so it's really easy to understand if you have no background in computer science. And once I realized that, hey, this programming stuff that I was doing with JavaScript and HTML, that's what computer science is. And now I can learn that in other languages too. That seems so much fun to me. And so while I was just taking computer science class as a one semester class, I decided to tack on the second semester and then go into AP computer science my senior year where I learned Java. From there, I basically knew that I wanted to major in computer science. So in Oregon, there's two really big state college rivalries, or one with two big state colleges, the Oregon State Beavers and the University of Oregon Ducks. My family is a very long line of beavers. So I knew I was going to go to Oregon State before I knew what I was going to do. And I knew that it had a good computer science program. So that was also a factor in what is this computer science thing was, I don't know, but Oregon State has a good computer science program. And so it was also self-reinforcing that I was just like, okay, this thing that I really like that kind of scratches the itch for problem solving is also a really good program at the university that I want to go to. So that just kind of became the natural next step. I went to Oregon State and I participated in an internship program there called MECOP, Multiple Engineering Co-op Program. And I was able to go on two different internships in computer science. One, I did a lot of Java back end and some basic web development. And then the second one was with a company called AppNexus, who ended up hiring me after graduation. And they did React. They were just starting to pick up React when I was there as an intern, and then were more heavily investing in it when I came back from college. And that was kind of my very first introduction to functional programming, because they were using Lodash. And they were using patterns like, oh, this function is dotted off of this function. This was before I had taken a functional programming class in college, and I had that right after the internship. So I was like, what is this? I don't understand what I'm looking at. Can you explain this to me? And my coworker explained, oh, this is functional programming. I was like, oh, hmm, okay. I know I'm going to have that class later, so I'm just going to stick a pin in that interest and kind of continue on and see what I can pick up on the job before I 
really get to learn it. When I went back to college, the functional programming class wasn't focused specifically on functional programming. It was a programming language fundamentals class. But really, it was like mostly Haskell and then two weeks of prologue, which was a lot of fun. And I basically was instantly charmed with Haskell. It felt like solving riddles. And I really enjoyed that. It was almost to the point where defining a variable felt like solving a riddle, which is maybe not the best, but it always made me feel really clever. And I like feeling clever, so I really liked Haskell. While I was in this class, one of my friends who shared my enjoyment of Haskell knew that I was kind of going down the front end path. I was like, hey, Katie, have you heard about this language called Elm? I was like, no, tell me about it. And so then I kind of stopped paying attention to class that day and went on the Elm programming language website and started playing around with their Elm editor in the browser and trying to figure out, like, what is this? And instantly I started, because I was in the Haskell class, I started comparing Elm to Haskell. And one of my favorite things in Haskell was function level pattern matching. And so I immediately tried that in Elm and Elm compiler was like, no, we don't do that here. And I was kind of miffed initially, but then I kind of warmed up to it. And I think that, I don't know if this was the intention of Elm, but as soon as I changed my perspective of it from a front end language for functional programming to functional programming for front-end programmers, it made some of the design decisions make more sense to me, like the function-level pattern matching. If you're coming from JavaScript world, you're not going to immediately reach for that tool in your tool belt, whereas if you are from the Haskell world, you might go for that initially. And so my like last term or so in college was when I started getting that itch for functional programming, the real appreciation for Haskell and Elm. And I went back to AppNexus and did more JavaScript and Redux. And Redux was really interesting to learn because it was, it used a lot of words that felt overloaded to me, like reduce or action, even though the action wasn't actually taking any action. And tangentially, my manager allowed me to pick like, what do you want to do in your 20% time? And the two things that I chose was learning Elm and learning Haskell. And it turned out that those were very, very useful for my day-to-day JavaScript. Because through learning Elm, I was able to get a better sense the Redux architecture, because the Redux architecture is inspired by the Elm architecture. And the word choices in Elm made a lot more sense to me than the word choices in Redux. Because a reduce in Redux, it took a while for me to understand what that really meant. But an update in Elm makes sense, because I already have the like mental model of what an update means. And just same thing with action versus message. Oh, I know that a message is like a little thing that's going to tell you something versus an action. I expect that to take an action. And so by understanding the concept in Elm, I was able to 
filter that down to its language agnostic lesson and take that over to Redux. A very similar thing happened with me with Haskell. I was going through the Learn You a Haskell for Great Good book. And while it was going through its like basic library functions like map and reduce or fold, I would go through them and do the lesson in Haskell. And then I would also do the lesson in JavaScript using Lodash, which helped me learn that library a lot better. One of the things in Lodash that I always had a hard time remembering what it meant was reduce. And once I realized that it was like Haskell's fold, I was able to remember it a lot better because for me, fold makes sense. I think of like, oh, I have many ingredients. I pour it all into one bowl and I fold it into one thing. Whereas reduce, I don't have that mental model. So that was kind of my itch scratching of functional programming while I was working at my JavaScript job and being able to understand those made me being able to understand functional programming core concepts allowed me to better understand the Lodash libraries and Redux and just kind of be more of a conscientious programmer as a whole, trying to keep in mind, like, will this make side effects? Am I using constants? And do what I consider as functional enough JavaScript, because JavaScript is always going to be a little hairy here and there, and that's what makes it fun sometimes. But you can do functional programming in it, and it's, it's a good time. So after that, now I said I'm a software engineer at No Red Ink. I am doing Elm. My team also owns some Elixir services, and I'm in a Elixir book club and a Haskell book club there. And so it's been really interesting transitioning from full-time JavaScript to more of these where I was describing JavaScript as functional enough. These are all kind of very functional languages and changing my mental model of like, okay, before I could just grab state from anywhere. Now I can't just grab state from anywhere. I do have to pass it in because functions are pure. And getting used to that has been interesting. A lot of typing, but it's been a lot of fun. And I'm really excited to be at a place where I can do functional programming day to day as my regular work. So it sounds like you were able to ride some of the functional renaissance in your university slash college studies, depending on where you are and what you call it. But the fact that you actually had a Haskell course and were exposed enough to it beforehand that you didn't lose it. Because I've talked to a number of people who are like, oh yeah, I had a functional programming course. And it was, I guess it was taught well, but in the middle of all this other stuff, before some of this functional programming renaissance was kicked off, it was just like, here's this weird odd course. And it's like, okay, I managed to get through it, but I don't know that I really managed to appreciate it and figure out how to take advantage of it. So it sounded like you kind of had some lucky timing where you were, where A, they were teaching it in university, and B, it actually was semi-relevant to the stuff that you were doing in your internships where you actually were able to lock onto it and pick up that pin you said you put it in like, oh, I'm going to learn about this and I've got some context going in now so I understand how to take away from it versus just some of us that have had those courses where it's like, 
because I had a list in college, and it was like, it was cool, it was neat, but it was still like, and this is relevant. How? Because uh, everything's pretty much focused on Java or something else in every other course. So when you go through, it sounds like you got really lucky with that as well and kind of helped plant that seed and scratch that itch. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of my classmates were kind of in that position of, uh, how is this relevant? And I felt very fortunate that before the class, I had the exposure on the internship of like, what is this? I don't fully understand this. I'll just kind of cargo cult it, copy and paste things and figure it out along the ways with the idea that I'll go back into college and really learn it. It was also helpful that at the end of that internship, I was offered the job. So I was going back to school knowing that I was going back to this company that is doing functional stuff in JavaScript. And so that really helped with the motivation of, yes, this stuff will be relevant to me. Yes, I should pay attention. And so as you stop paying attention at some point because you get sidetracked with Elm and you're trying to figure that out, as you start taking this out and you said you did Elm for your 20% time, how are you noticing the Haskell experience you put that pin in and realized, oh, this will be relevant to this? If nothing else, teaching you and reinforcing it from the Haskell side that says, here's pure functions and here's side effectful functions. And it's nice when you don't have to mix the two because as soon as you start introducing side effects with monads, you start to contaminate some other stuff. Whereas your pure functions, like I can test that stuff all day long, it's straightforward. And you start to see some of these, even if it's just the beginning of a hint of that stuff, and you start going to Elm which advocates the purity and actions and commands and messages. They're all different. So you can't just like click a button and do something else with a callback handler like you do in JavaScript. How did some of that stuff set the foundation that when you started to pick up React again and Redux, pull that in and influence your thinking? Because I know I've been at places where React and you have some places go full-on actions and things like Redux Saga. So everything is an action and you have essentially Redux Saga, which is like reducers or the Elm commands that you just go through a separate pipeline and you have your actions for your update, state updates, but then others are like, well, we still bury some on-click handlers here and we're just going to modify some state inside the component anyway and not necessarily fire off an action. And I know there's different ways of thinking. So how did you take your thinking from Haskell and Elm and how did that influence your Redux and React as you were going through and digging deeper into all this stuff in your 20% time? So my understanding of Haskell and Elm really gave me the foundation or the appreciation for pure functions. So I tried to be as pure as I could with everything and be like, okay, if I'm going to use something, I should pass it into something. We use Redux. We did not use Redux sagas at the time, though I think they're starting to add them in. But Redux was one that took, like I said, took a while for me to really fully understand how everything was connected. I think that one of the things that really helped me was learning currying because I was able to 
understand one of the bugs that my team, as we were learning things about Redux and React and everything, one of the bugs that we commonly wrote initially were, oh, this function will be called when I click on click. But hey, you can pass something in initially, or you can call it. And so sometimes we'd accidentally call it when we're using it inside of building up the component, instead of passing it in as the callback. And so learning Haskell and learning Lodash and learning that sort of currying process, more or less, it allowed me to better understand, oh, this is when I do want to add parens. This is when I don't want to add parens. I do want to add it if I'm passing in an additional property. And I have to wrap that in in a Lambda function or an anonymous function. And being able to really understand anonymous functions and how we use them uh, and how we pass them around was definitely helped by Elm and Haskell. And if you're coming in as, I'm guessing, a junior developer from going as an intern and then you're coming out of college and you're doing this and you're doing Elm and understanding the Elm architecture, which, again, depending on how you approach Redux, you can almost mirror the Elm architecture in Redux and you're doing Haskell. How did that help you establish stuff when you were putting these patterns? Were you driving some of these changes on your own? Was everybody figuring out React? Because if that time, depending on the timeline, was it still new to the team and you were able to help drive this? Or was this one of those things, you're seeing this stuff, you're seeing, here's how I'd like to do it, but now I have to try and make a case to the rest of the team to try and like do some of this stuff from what I'm learning in my 20% time. What was that kind of evolution in your perspective there of compared to the rest of the team and getting a way of working that lent itself to the more functional style? I was super fortunate that I worked with a lot of people who also really appreciated functional programming. So they were also really conscious of this style. We had a front-end guild that was once a month we'd put on lightning talks. And so that was one of the ways that I would kind of talk about for one Elm and how that relates to the Redux architecture was through these 10, 15 minute talks with everyone. And so that was how we spread a lot of knowledge. We had an Elixir channel for a moment, even though we weren't writing in Elixir, just because a lot of us were really interested in learning it. So it was less me driving things and more me being able to absorb the information from a lot of different angles, whether that be my coworkers in JavaScript, that be the Haskell or Elm. I felt very fortunate to have a great computer science teacher, Mr. Smith, in high school. And one thing that he said that really stuck with me was that it doesn't matter what language you're using as long as you learn the paradigm. So you can take any semantics into any syntax and figure out the idea of the idea before figuring out the wording of the idea. And so that has been really a guiding light for me as I learn all these different languages. And I'm sure it has helped me become kind of a lifelong language learner because I appreciate all these different approaches to these problems and helping that triangulate my understanding of them. So you get in, you get this experience, you're playing with Elm, you're playing with Haskell, no red ink. 
get put on your radar. And you said you moved from Oregon down to San Francisco. And at that same time, you're going full on with Elm and learning a new team, learning a new Elm, which gives you the basis for your talk that I saw from you for Elm in the Spring, which was one of the reasons I wanted to get you on. Do you want to give a high-level pitch of what that talk was about and just some of the high-level lessons there? Because those that talk, and I will get the talk in the show notes, but it seems applicable to more than just the small scale that you give in your talk. Can you highlight that at a little bit and cover the high-level topics of what you found going in about how you talk about orienting yourself around different areas? So I got to No Red Ink. And while No Red Ink is mostly remote for engineering, I chose to move to San Francisco because I really like being around people and I hadn't lived outside of the state of Oregon before. At the same time, like you were saying, I was orienting myself in a brand new code base and trying to figure out what what is going on? How do I read all of this? So coming into No Red Ink, I had done about one and a half side projects in Elm. I say a half because on one of them, I got to the point where I had to design the UI and I thought, "Mm, I'll do that later. And then later never came. We also use Ruby on Rails at No Red Ink, and I had zero experience with Ruby on Rails. So I really, really had very little experience with the language that we were using at No Red Ink. And so at the same time that I found myself in a brand new code base, I was also in a brand new city living outside of the state of Oregon for the very first time. And so I was finding myself in two different areas and realized that orienting myself in one wasn't so dissimilar from orienting myself in the other. I think I was about two months in when Brian Hicks messaged me on Slack and was like, hey, have you thought about giving talks before? Or I said, yeah, I'm interested in the idea. I have no idea what I'd talk about. And it turns out that there was a brand new Elm conference, Elm in the Spring, that was coming up in Chicago. And they needed one more brand new speaker. And so I said, yeah, I'm not not interested, but what should I talk about? And Brian's like, well, you're in a brand new, really big Elm code base. You could probably talk about that. And so I pondered on that for a little bit. Background on me with the computer science degree, I also did a minor in cognitive psychology. And so because of that, I understand like the different ways people learn and how we think and everything. And when I was thinking about how I've been exploring the code base, I started thinking a lot about cognitive maps. And cognitive maps are what we build up in our head to represent an area. There's kind of two different representations of a map in your head. It's one is 3D, like you're in it. And then another one is 2D, the above bird's eye view. And I was thinking about how exploring a new area physically is kind of similar to exploring code. You're kind of poking around, seeing where you end up, getting lost. And then while I was coming up with this talk for the concept for the talk, I thought, hmm, when have I been in a new area? Oh, wait, I just moved to one. And so I was able to mirror 
the experience of exploring a new code base to the experience of exploring the brand new city I just moved into. And that really helped me kind of build a structural narrative for my talk, which was fun. And partway through writing it, I realized that I was actually exploring the code the opposite way from how I was exploring the city. So with the city, I was moving from another state. So I couldn't initially just start walking around the streets of San Francisco. I had to start with a bird's eye view. I started with Google Maps and doing a lot of general research before I was able to get more specific, try to look at specific neighborhoods that I was interested in, and then ultimately come here and look for specific apartments and then start small and get bigger, start just like walking around and getting lost versus the code. I was already in it. So I was able to start walking around and getting lost immediately, start just kind of going around the code, see what I can find. What can I break? What's going to happen until I get more and more knowledge of something and then I can spread out from there? Oh, I learned all of these things from this experience. What do I think I can generalize? Oh, hey, the way that we store our Elm files mirrors our routes. So maybe if I have another Elm file in this folder, that will be the route for that Elm file. And I'm able to build up these generalizations and kind of hypotheses. And so I gave this talk, Where the Elm Am I? And it was all about trying to find my way in both a big city and a big Elm code base at the same time. So you mentioned one thing that I figured would be interesting to get into. You said, what can we break? Doing some Elm and a side gig? Personally, I found the, what can I break? Either it's very small or very narrow or it's very wide, but it's at least very explicit. When you were trying to figure out and you're coming from JavaScript land and Redux land and the dynamic typing and hopefully you have good tests, hopefully the tests are actually testing it and not just mocked everywhere or subbed out or something with dependencies. How did you find the difference of playing with the, now I'm in a real Elm code base that I don't know when I try and break it. What did you find the, what can we break and how do I find that kind of stuff coming into an Elm code base versus how you might've been playing with this at your previous job when you're like, okay, I got a defect or I got something else, but let me see how I can break this elsewhere. What were some of the things that you found or appreciated useful or interesting in the difference between the two? So one of the things that I, usually break first are the types and just see what does the compiler say and just from that sentence kind of shows you the difference of breaking something in elm versus breaking something in javascript i feel like i'm learning how to trust again using elm because before with javascript it's like oh, i don't trust anyone i'm just going to do this little thing over here go to the browser double check do this thing go to the browser do this thing go to the browser versus with elm it's like, oh, I broke something. Now the compiler is going to tell me. Whereas in JavaScript, I'm like, oh, I changed this one thing. Now let me cover my butt and figure out where that thing is everywhere else in the code base and try to preemptively fix it. Elm is like, hey, let's just fix it together. It'll be fine. 
And I'm still getting used to that workflow because I will go through and be like, okay, now I have to remember exactly how I use this variable. And let me try to remember where that file is. Elm, I could just trust the compiler to tell me, oh, hey, this file, here's the exact path of that file has this thing that you just broke. And being able to break things that way allows you to slowly, I feel like breaking things in Elm is also kind of building up trust with the compiler. You're like, oh yeah, it did catch that. Oh, it did catch that too. But you're also kind of learning how reading the imports. I made the joke in my talk about import blah dot blah as blah exposing blah or import blah dot something as something exposing something. It took me a while to figure out like why are there so many somethings and another one that kind of took a while for me to remember how to trace up is exposing everything in a module. So paren dot dot and paren. Being able to trust the compiler to follow those paren dot dot and parens versus trusting myself is also an interesting way to figure out, okay, how is everything connected? And I was also wondering how that helps with building a mental map. Just if you're out in California, it may be a slightly ill-tasting analogy, depending on how many earthquakes you've experienced recently, but you see the disaster movies, it almost seems like if I want to break something, and the disaster movies, you have the gas line that explodes, and then you see like, oh, here's exactly where the sewer line goes, because you see all the jets of fire coming out of the manhole covers or whatever. Elm seems to give you that kind of, if I break this, I know exactly where I broke this, because it gives me that giant trace as opposed to JavaScript, how do you find that other kind of map that's being constructed when you break things? How do you find that tie-in with your cognitive mapping and everything else in your background there as well? When you say, okay, I'm going to break this. Okay, there's a ton of explosions, and I see everywhere this ripples. How did that align with your cognitive mapping minor and the way you construct cognitive maps as well? Because that top part wasn't necessarily in the talk with about breaking things and seeing the ripples go through the whole code base necessarily. So when I was talking about breaking stuff in the talk, I was kind of talking more on building up a brand new part of the code base because that was my first project. And breaking things for me ended up meaning like refactoring. So refactoring in JavaScript and kind of learning how everything went means I can't trust anyone, I'm going to have to go out and figure out like, okay, I know that there's a carbon monoxide leak somewhere, but I can't smell it and I can't see it. All I know is it is not null. And so I have to figure out like, okay, where will I maybe die? Versus in Elm, being able to refactor is almost a non-issue. It's kind of a, it's kind of a whack-a-mole game because you whack this mole and then another error pops up over here. But you know exactly where that error pops up. You just have to continue going with the compiler. And I feel like that helps you build that cognitive map faster because you are able to be more willing to break things. And for me, that's kind of like getting lost in a city. 
when you're getting lost in a city, you're learning new routes. And so just like when you're breaking things and seeing what pops up, you're learning new parts of the code and new ways how this thing over here is connected to that thing over there. And being able to follow those logic paths lets you figure out, okay, if I can walk from here to there, then maybe I can walk from there to way over there. And being able to build up that mental model in tandem with the Elm compiler is really helpful. And so as you go through, your talk was on a new piece of functionality. I'm assuming at some point you went in and started touching old functionality. And that was kind of part of the question was, did you use the breaking stuff and the old functionality to see what things are working and how things are working compared to what it is? How are you building up your mental maps when it came time to go in and explore other parts of the code that's not just fresh and you have to figure out, well, I see the patterns that they're doing, so I can kind of sort of copy paste and make sure my like at least initial model view update stuff and messages kind of look the same because I'm kind of following the same patterns, but now i got to go in and actually see, I've got to make a change to this existing one, and maybe this is one of the bigger older files. How do you find building up that cognitive map once it was not a new piece of functionality? Yeah, so the new piece of functionality was actually new to Elm. I was refactoring it out of jQuery and Haml and Ruby on Rails. We still had kind of a Ruby on Rails backend for it. But that was really interesting in the beginning because I hadn't used the site before. And it was the first page the students see when they go to Nova Inc. And so that was a lot of just when I was building up the mental model for how does this page work? I didn't even look at the code at all. I was just poking around and seeing what can I click on on this page? Well, what if I click this before I click that? How can I break this? What are all the weird edge cases? And try to take that in. Since building up that brand new interest page that we called it, going back and refactoring it has been interesting because I have like some of the ideas of like, yeah, I built this. But it's also like, yeah, I built this six months ago. And how much of the code do we really remember from six months ago? So I do have to go back in and like kind of relearn it. And then there's other parts of the Elm code. So one of the things that I've done recently has been, okay, there's this, I like to say component because I come from React, but I know we don't use that as commonly in Elm. There's this portion of the code, it's a bar graph that we want to extract. And so I like to go in and kind of poke around, delete what I can from the types to see what things start exploding and poking around the UI and taking notes like, what are the different edge cases of this? And how can I extract this carefully? And then there's another layer of, okay, so I'm starting to learn the ways we write Elm code now. Like, how do we style our Elm elements? And we encounter every once in a while because Elm is so, has been so quickly iterating old parts of our code that don't use the more common way of styling things or the more accessible way of styling things. And being able to see, okay, this is how we used to do it. Now, how do I change that? How do I move from HTML to HTML styled? 
And I'll just start throwing in styled places and see what starts complaining and how it complains. Oh, this thing doesn't want to be styled. Okay, too unstyled. And following the compiler errors to figure out what do I need to paste in different places. Makes sense. And then before we get to the end and start wrapping up, I wanted to cover your transition to actually doing some Elixir, a little bit of Haskell there. But if you're working on some Elixir services, I love me some Erlang and Elixir. And I like the simple types that you build up from complex types. But sometimes I find I slip back into the dynamic habits. So when you're working on Elixir, what are you finding there as you're picking up the Elixir and working on Elixir there? Because I know you have things like specs and other things that you can use in Elixir and things like Dialyzer to run on and do some other type checking. But what is it looking like when you're going and picking up your Elixir after coming from Haskell and Elm as well? Because you got Elm with this very specific architecture on the UI. Elixir, maybe, maybe not. There's a lot more latitude and freedom working in Elixir and Haskell. So when you're working on the backend stuff, what have you found as you start to transition to doing a little bit more backend development again? So it's been really interesting with the two Elixir services that my team owns because they were written by people who are were really into Elixir but are no longer at the company. And so it was just like, here you go, team that has the manager who knows Elixir. Just kind of figure it out. And so we've been slowly figuring out. I think the most helpful thing while I was trying to parse through the brand new code base we owned was I decided to go through a video tutorial that my manager had shared. And I thought, hmm, maybe instead of just passively watching this video, I should also go through our code base and see what I can find. And so the video started talking about the gen server. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's over here. I can figure out where that is. And learning about the gen server helped me learn about how the data was flowing through this. And I realized that the problem that we were working on right then, we had a hard time understanding how to solve the problem because we didn't know how data was flowing through the application. And so that was definitely one thing that took a moment to realize what was going on was all of the, hey, I'm going to send this message over here, and then someone over here is going to receive that message. And I think another thing that has been interesting for me was the syntax, because I know that Elixir, a lot of people like it because it is reminiscent of Ruby, which I am still getting used to, and it's not a thing that I'm used to. So I'm just like, hmm, I don't really know what's going on here. But between me and another teammate who also doesn't have much Elixir background, we decided to start an Elixir book club at work. So we're reading the little Elixir and OTP guide and have been going through that since we thought, oh, hey, now that we own two Elixir services, we should probably learn the language and learn how to be good stewards of the service instead of just kind of writing Elixir with like an Ruby accent or an Elm accent, being able to write Elixir in the Elixir paradigm. And as we've been talking about cognitive maps, there's that. But have you figured out, I guess, when you break things, you're learning to trust, as you talk about trusting the Elm compiler. What have you found about how you're actually 
working in Elixir with that? Because I know you have the pattern matching. You have you can do the pattern matching on your function clauses, and you can do a lot of these things that you get from the Haskell world, but the types may or may not be as explicit. You can type it and make sure it is explicit up front, but when you essentially do the, oh, I kind of got a wildcard match, or I got some other kind of message here or something, because I got an okay tuple or an error tuple, but maybe those are refined a little bit more than I'm thinking of. How are you finding your trust that you're building up with Elm translating back into your Elixir when you're doing that from the functional side? Are you finding it's like, well, we're pretty pure between the stuff and only modifying state inside our processes, so you're not finding that balance as much. So where, where are you finding that? Yeah, my teammates have definitely been bitten by the fact that we can't trust types as much in Elixir. We're very used to like, Elm and being able to know that this is a type and this will always be that type versus Elixir kind of having that thrown up in the air a little bit. I feel like my experience with kind of breaking things in Elixir hasn't been refined yet. I am still breaking things haphazardly as opposed to scientifically. And I'm hoping that through this Elixir book club that we've started, I'll start learning more of the paradigm of Elixir so I can go in and break things on purpose and with purpose, as opposed to just kind of being a hippo in a ceramic shop. Makes sense. Because I, again, having done Ruby myself and Elixir and JavaScript and other things, sometimes you get the more dynamic languages where you're like, yeah, we're returning a null, a string, an int, or something else all in this function, I've noticed Elixir at least is better about like, no, you're going to get pretty much get one of these basic types. You're going to get a tuple. It's an okay tuple or an error tuple and your pattern match. So you're, you're refining it a lot more. So it's not quite the dynamic stuff, but I wasn't sure how you were finding. But I know that's also depending on who adopts Elixir and Erlang and stuff from what background. So I wasn't sure how you were finding this compared to also the Ruby stuff that you're doing when you were doing some of the Ruby migrations as well. Yeah, it's been, I think we have Elixir services that are written well. And I think that we have people on the team who want to learn enough Elixir to continue to write it well. So while we have been bit by the interesting types in Elixir, it hasn't been like every single day there's a problem. I think we've been bit like one or two times, which seems pretty good. So we're coming up on time. Is there any other topics that we haven't covered that you want to at least highlight before we move on to wrapping up and letting people know what you're up to? Is there anything else that has been relevant recently that you want to talk about make sure we cover at least mention or point people to? Yeah. So I am currently upping my one and a half Elm side projects to two and a half Elm side projects because I'll be talking at ElmConf right before Strange Loop. And it is a six degrees of Kevin Bacon type game where you try to make a connection between two people in six degrees or less, but within the Marvel universe. And part of this was because I found a Marvel GraphQL endpoint, and I thought that that's perfect. It's a graph theory problem, so a graph solution will be great for it. Spoiler alert, best laid plans of mice and men don't always turn out all that great. While 
if it was the ideal GraphQL endpoint, it would have been great. I've had to fall back on REST and kind of figure out, okay, what do I do if I don't own the backend, if I don't own that API? What are different caching strategies I can use and how flexible do I have to be? So I've been trying to connect Squirrel Girl, who she is part squirrel and part girl. She's also a computer science student who believes in empathy. So I've been trying to connect her with the Marvel Universe. And that's going pretty well, I think. I have connected her. So far, my test data has been Spider-Man and Wolverine. And she is one degree from Spider-Man and apparently two degrees from Wolverine. It's been a lot of fun. It's been interesting thinking about the model in such a computational complex issue and seeing how iterating on that model has been. I'm really excited to see what the talk's going to end up like, (laughs) even though I'm the one in charge of that. But I'm really excited for ElmConf. Like I said, my first talk was Elm in the Spring. I enjoyed giving that talk so much that the next day I started thinking about what my CFP would be for ElmConf. If you haven't given a talk before, I highly recommend looking into Elm and looking into the Elm conferences because I feel like our community does a really good first-time speakers and giving that support to people. And at the beginning of the year, I kind of set a goal for myself that maybe I'll be a speaker this year. We'll see what happens. And now I'm speaking at two. So If you're out there thinking, maybe I won't tell anyone, but maybe I'll be a speaker, you should just go for it and try looking into something that you're interested in. Try submitting a CFP and seeing what support you receive and seeing what you can do. So you kind of had some cheat codes with Brian reaching out to you, but based off your experience as the first time speaker and now working on your second CFP, Are there any cheat codes that you got back from being encouraged about what a good CFP looks like that you would point out and kind of tips that you've gotten that you want to share with anybody else who's looking at potentially being that first-time speaker so they can not just be like, hey, I'm a first-time speaker, but actually have a CFP that looks more like a multiple-time speaker, even if they're a first-time speaker? Yeah. Part of the advice that I I received going into my second talk, but my first CFP, was breaking down the outline early. And at first, I was intimidated by that. I thought, does that mean that I have to have done my project already and know exactly what I'm saying? But once I started thinking about it, I realized that I kind of already had this idea of how things would go, and that my outline for my talk could be questions. Like, what questions do I want to answer with this project that I'm doing? Well, one of the questions is, what sort of caching strategies will I use? And then you can put some, like, hypotheses, even though maybe some of those won't work out exactly as you plan. But they will be interesting to talk about. Like, oh, hey, I tried this. It did not work. Here is why, and here's what worked better. That's more interesting than, hey, I tried this, and it worked the first time. Another thing that really helped me is thinking about the learning objectives for the audience. Who is your audience and what do you think that they should be getting out of your talk? That was one piece of advice that Brian gave me after I 
demoed my talk for him. He said, like, explicitly write out your learning objectives before the Elm in the Spring talk. And I added that. And I feel like that kind of helped focus the audience more. And then going into the CFP, I also added here are the learning objectives I hope to get across. And I think focusing on the learning objectives really helps engage your audience and helps the audience become more focused on what they should pay attention to. Those sound like great tips to keep in mind for anybody, whether it's a conference or I guess just even the brown bag kind of meetups that you were talking about at work and just making sure that your small little scale talks are still know what to be expected when you go and say, oh, I got little lightning brown bag talk that I want to give to the crowd. So we mentioned your upcoming appearance at Strange Loop slash Elmconf. Is there any other projects, anything else you want to plug, any other projects you're involved with you want to let people know about, or just recommendations in general you want to let our audience know about that you think they would appreciate? Yeah. One of the resources I found really helpful that we're going through, I mentioned the Elixir Book Club at work, but we're also I'm also participating in the Haskell Book Club at work. And we've been going through Git programming with Haskell from Manning Publications. And it has been a very helpful guide. I've really enjoyed the voice of the book. And we've been talking about like, oh, I wish they introduced this earlier. But that's because a lot of us in the book club have at least some background in Haskell. One thing we've all agreed on is that it would be a really great resource for someone brand new to Haskell or brand new to functional programming. And that's Git Programming with Haskell. With Elm, I first started with the elmtutorial.org, which I think is now just part of the Elm language. That did a great walkthrough. That's what I went through that kind of taught me the Elm architecture that helped me learn Redux. So if you're out there learning more of the JavaScript side of things and learning about Redux, it might be useful to learn the architecture through Elm and then draw those parallels between those things. I think that those are the two resources that have stood out to me for sure. And then what are the best places for people to follow along, keep updated, watch your progress, scroll girl updates or anything else that they want to follow along and keep up to date with you as you progress and work on your presentations, share your knowledge? What are the best places for people to follow along and keep track of what you're doing? The best place is definitely Twitter. I am Glittering Katie. Glitter, like the stuff that gets everywhere. Glittering Katie on Twitter and on all of the social media and also GlitteringKatie.com where I link my... GlitteringKatie.com is basically just a static page that links to my Twitter, GitHub, and Medium, the holy trinity of Silicon Valley. But that's where you can find me. On Twitter, I tweet about programming sometimes and comics most of the time. I'll get those added to the show notes so everyone listening can find out more and follow along with where you are if they're not right out of the computer at this moment as they're listening. So I'll make sure they're in the show notes and so people can come back and listen to it and track you down. Perfect. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for logo. And once again, thank you, Katie, for taking your time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking with you getting more in-depth about your background and expanding on your talk because I really enjoyed your 
we're in the MI talk, and it was a pleasure talking to you and just finding out more about your experience. So thank you for taking your time to join me today. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you as well. Until next time, this has been Functional Decrease.